First Timothy chapter one, let's begin in verse 10. Did it what I say? Timothy, I'm just trying to throw you off to see if you're paying attention. Verse Peter, there we go, chapter one. But I originally said first Peter, right? Okay, all right, all right. Just making sure I didn't lose that much of my mind. First Peter chapter one, let's begin in verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love for the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Let's pray together. Father, we have a, a full plate set before us of feasting upon your word and we know, Lord, that we're not worthy to even look at it apart from your grace and apart from your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us and reveal all the things you want to reveal to us. We want to obey what you reveal to us, Lord, as an expression of worship. So we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We have begun a book that has been written mainly to Jewish believers uh, who, because of persecution, have been scattered all over what's now modern-day Turkey. We saw last week that in verse 1, he referred to them as pilgrims of the dispersion. Kind of sounds like a rock band. Pilgrims of dispersion or something like that. I don't know. But they were pilgrims. We are pilgrims. We are traveling. Some of you really like that. You're like, oh, that's pretty good. I like rock band. But we are pilgrims. We're traveling. We're moving through this earth. We are not, this isn't our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And he reminds them of that. And he tells them that you are of the dispersion. You are of the scattering. 
That you're not where you are by accident. God somehow is not sovereign because evil man has meant something for evil. But God has meant it for good. And he's placed you strategically where he's placed you, just like all of our lives, for his purposes. To be salt and light there. I also mentioned last week that Caesar Nero in AD 64, he, he let just this incredible persecution loose and it spread throughout the Roman Empire and ultimately it would uh, contribute to the martyrdom of Peter himself who was martyred upside down on a cross. And, and Paul was beheaded, tradition tells us. It was all a result of this wave of persecution. And so this book and the next one in Second Peter has been established by God in the lives of his people throughout the, the Christian age as a means of encouragement, as a means of getting proper perspective in trials. All of us need perspective in trials. We need perspective all the time, but especially in trials because the trial uh, encroaches upon our vision and we only see our trial. And God takes us and he lifts us up out of our immediate circumstances, lets us see the bird's eye view from his vantage point, so to speak, as heaven sees it, and we get to get our eyes off of our circumstances and onto him and everything that he's accomplishing. So Peter, as we begin to see, and we're going to continue to see in First and Second Peter, actually, these two themes that occur over and over again, the theme of eternity, for us to get our attention on eternity. And also, secondly, uh, practical holiness. And so the first one we might expect. The second one we may not expect that God would give this instruction related to practical holiness in the context of suffering. But he does. So the first one we would expect. And every uh, disciple of Jesus Christ needs to get our focus uh, on eternity, which is an absolute blessing for us. Last week we saw in verse 2 that he calls us the elect, that God has chosen us. And that the Father has chosen us according to his foreknowledge. So the Father has chosen us, the Spirit has set us apart, and the Son has cleansed us. All three, of the God, all the three members of the Godhead were involved and engaged related to our salvation. We're also told in verse 3 that he has begotten us again to a living hope. Because of the Lord Jesus' bodily resurrection, now our hope is living. I mean, our, our, our hope that we have in Christ, in him, because he is alive, then he gives us a hope that's, that's uh, confident and secure related to our resurrection uh, from the dead and getting our glorified bodies. But then he starts speaking of our inheritance in verse 4. He said our inheritance is incorruptible, it's undefiled, it does not fade away. Because when you're under persecution... Your earthly inheritance can be corrupted. Your earthly inheritance, inheritance can be def, um, defiled and it can fade away. So he is uh, securing something that cannot be tampered with. No matter what evil plans or what we go through in this life, nothing can change the fact that God has reserved for us a beautiful, precious, priceless, holy inheritance. But as we also saw, uh, you know, in, in verse 5, that he, does, he doesn't just keep an inheritance for us. He keeps us for the inheritance. He told us that. We were told that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God is keeping us. We put our focus on ourselves a lot. Some of that's good. Some of that's appropriate. But when we talk about him keeping us, 
He is, his power is available to hold us where we need to stay. And he does that through our faith in him, <clears throat> excuse me, and our faith uh, in our physical deliverance that he's going to accomplish uh, from this world to the next one and give us a new body. And so he, these beautiful things to keep our eyes on eternity and our, and our inheritance and how he's keeping us for that inheritance. Then he got to the bad news. <laughs> why can't we just have that? Why, couldn't, why did he have to talk about you know, trials? That it's necessary. He tells us the truth about our lives. He tells us what's really going on, what's really happening, what, and that, so that we're not caught off guard. And so he said that if need be, you, you go through these things and for a little while. You know, in light of eternity, our, what we have to go through that are trials doesn't even compare to the glory that we will be revealed in us and how we'll get to enjoy our relationship with him for all eternity. So he told us also that our faith is going to be tested and it needs to be tested. It's been said a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And that's true. He wants us to be able to trust him completely. And so as he cultivates our spiritual development, he does it many times through trials so that as our faith gets stronger and stronger and stronger, then we know that we're going to be uh, able to withstand any attack or any uh, circumstance. Now today, as we look at the rest of chapter 1, Peter's going to start covering another theme or the other path of everything that I've said that he's going to cover in these two books. The first one, as I said, is eternity and our inheritance and so forth. But now he's going to talk about from verses you know, 10 through the end of the chapter, he's going to be talking about practical holiness. And this does catch us off guard. I mean, you think they're going through so much suffering and hardship. You'd think that, you know, maybe God would, uh, maybe in our carnal thinking, would think maybe he would lower the standard. But he doesn't. He keeps that standard right where it needs to be related to personal holiness. Even in a trial, our practical holiness needs to be growing. Not only is it shouldn't go down the other direction, but it needs to increase and it needs to grow. And so he, he's going to give us very specific things that we need to remember and recognize and obey, even in the context of a trial. So in verses 10 through 12, he, uh, he gets to the fact that they've received a revelation. We've received a revelation far greater than the prophets. He says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. Interesting. These prophets that were inspired and moved by the Spirit, they, they inquired and searched carefully. They, they didn't know the fullness of what they were really saying and what they were really writing and he says, who have prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Talking about his recipients, talking about to us. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So he says they were searching related to what the circumstances were there. And also notice he says, what manner of time. That's a very interesting word, the word time there. There's a word for time, that, this word from which we get our word uh, chronology. This is another word. This is talking about opportunity. It's translated in the New Testament many times as opportunity or a season. It's a very, uh, very much an appointed, very specific time. 
So these prophets were searching what or what manner of time all of, this, all of these things would occur. They, they didn't have the full picture. As tough as the lives were of these believers, and as tough as the lives are that we live at times, these prophets about whom he's speaking would have died or, or done anything to, to be in this uh, time period that we find ourselves. Because we're on the other side of the cross. They only saw a little glimpse through their writings and through what they were prophesying. They couldn't see the full picture. It's been said that when you approach a mountain range, like think, think of the Rocky Mountains and you're coming from the east and you're coming up to the Rocky Mountains and you're seeing these, these mountains and you're seeing all these tops of mountains and everything, but from your perspective, it, it, it could look like there's just a short little strip of mountains, a short little range. But as you get closer, you start to see the depth, right? And then as you get up on the mountains, you really see the depth and so forth. And then when you get on the other side of the mountain range, as you have experienced all of those things, you look back and you have a very clear picture of what that silhouette represented. And that's a good picture of what the prophets were looking at as they were looking at the future. They're looking at these prophecies. They're aware of the other writings of the other prophets. They had limited, depending on when they were writing, had limited exposure to those, to those things. But they had exposure to them. And the, 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 the total picture, the cumulative picture of what they knew about what was coming related to the Messiah and so forth was the equivalent of them walking up to that mountain range and seeing those mountaintops interspersed but not having any depth and not having the fullness of what the reality represented. But we do. We have all of that. They had all of that there. And so they searched and searched, but they could only have a limited perspective. He's saying to these recipients, you, have, you can know the whole mountain range. You can look back and see everything that they couldn't see. And, 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 and so you need to appreciate all the revelation that you've received and know that those things are valuable and those things God wants to use in your life to help fortify you against what you're going through. And so he says, you have nothing. I mean, Jeremiah had nothing on you. Ezekiel had nothing on you. Isaiah, Daniel, Hosea. I mean, you go through all the different prophets. They would have loved to have all the revelation that you have. And so be thankful for it. What they would have traded for the revelation that these believers had, we do not know. But I suspect that it would be pretty substantial. Verse 12. To them, that is the prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So what God did by the Spirit to those prophets at the time, because they were searching, they were asking God, they were inquiring. God, I want to know the specifics of this Messiah about whom I'm prophesying. I want to know. And, and they inquired and searched and so forth. But what the Spirit gave them was the comfort that, yes, they don't have all the picture, the, the, the big picture. They don't see the whole mountain range. But the, the purposes that God had for them was not supremely for them. It was for those that would be receiving what they prophesied in the future. And that's these believers, and that's us today. So he, he comforted the prophets in that. This is not supremely for you. This is not for themselves. This is for us. And, and that was supposed to encourage them. You know, you think of Daniel, you know, in chapter 12. 
Daniel has all this revelation revealed to him. And at one point, God says, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. I mean, that was a very overt way of God saying, you know, this isn't for you. This is, this is for something else. This is for down the road. But there was much more uh, um, subtle expressions of that where, you know, you think of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus quoted that when he was in Nazareth. You know, he quoted that verse and he said, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. And what he did was, if you study it out, he stopped in the middle of verse 2. He didn't even, there wasn't even a separation of verses in between his first coming and his second coming. We're talking in the middle of one verse. So that's, that's, that's the, the, Isaiah could never have known that in the middle of one of his verses, I mean, he didn't even think in verses, of course, but there would be, a, there'd be 2,000 years the difference between his first coming and his second coming, there's no way he could have known that. But God did encourage them that it was for someone else's benefit. And then he says, things which angels desire, present tense, things which angels currently desire to look into. They want to know about salvation. They want to know about the things of salvation that God has freely revealed to us. They want to learn. They, they, they inquire about those things. The encouragement is, look, you have been given so much revelation. All that the prophets went through, in part, was for your benefit. And so you're going through this difficulty. Appreciate this revelation and properly appropriate what God's entrusted to you and act upon it and realize that you have a great stewardship right now, even in the context of great difficulty. Too much is given, much is required, we're told. And so think about us now. We're 2,000 years later almost. We have the revelation. I mean, they didn't have, these believers didn't have the Gospel of John yet. They didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have a lot of the New Testament books. We have how many Bibles in our houses? We have the whole testimony of the church age, all that have gone before us as examples. We have so much more accountability as New Testament believers in this day and age than they, they ever did here, even these believers in this time. So that's a good encouragement for us to, uh, you know, uh, properly um, make use of that, that revelation and appreciate it and stand on those promises. Now in verse 13, like I said, he gets to this practical, uh, and to the rest of the chapter, gets on to this practical holiness. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully, upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, for most of us, we don't even know what a loin is, much less know how to gird one. <laughs> you know, it was like, what is that? But in those days, they wore robes. And so when they were supposed to do some kind of work or when they would have to run, they would take the robe and they would pull up the bottom of it and they would, you know, make shorts, basically. I mean, they would, they would wrap it up into their belt, and, and, and that was called girding up their loins. They were getting ready, and it was, it was an expression in that day of saying, you know, gird up your loins and get to work. We kind of say it as like, roll up your sleeves and get to work. It's, it's don't be encumbered, and he's, and he's focusing it on the mind, and that's very important when you think about a trial, because we're attacked in our minds so often when we're going through difficulty. There's doubt, there's fear, there's, uh, you know, worry. There's all these things that, that encroach upon our focus upon the Lord. And he gives us the responsibility to unencumber our minds with excess fluff or things that can trip us up, things that can uh, stumble us mentally. He gives us the responsibility. He says, you do it. You gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. 
And it's not just talking about using, not using you know, drugs or whatever. It's, it's that it's included, of course. But it's talking about thinking clearly, thinking responsibly. That's, that's why it blessed me so much to hear, just to hear about Peggy's testimony, about having the word of God built into her life. She's become sober-minded. We all have under the teaching of God's word. God's word does that. So we can think appropriately and soberly related to what we're going through and the difficulty and, and God's purposes associated with it and that he's not out of control and that he's not off the throne and that his promises are still true and he's going to be faithful because his faithfulness is based on who he is and not who we are and his, his love is not conditional. I mean, all these things that the word of God washes over our minds and renews our minds and brings a needed sobriety so that we can be completely focused on thinking appropriate things when we're in the midst of difficulty. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and rest your hope, notice the next word, fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've been intrigued lately of thinking about these verses that talk about how God is investing in our lives to prepare us for the moment that we meet Christ. And he has all these expectations about what will happen in our hearts and in our minds at that very moment when we meet him. And this is one of them. That we're supposed to rest our hope not halfway, not 70%, not 99%, fully upon the grace that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ when he's revealed to us. And so all of that's supposed to help us uh, navigate difficulty and hardship, and trials, and persecution, and all these things. But he continues beyond the mind in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. Boy, did we do a lot of things in our ignorance. Now, we knew it was wrong because we, God gave us a conscience. Some things we didn't have the full understanding of how wrong they were. But as we come to know the Lord, and we know his word, now we know the the fullness of how bad those things were. So he's saying you did those things in, 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 in ignorance. Be obedient children. I think we can't overlook the word children there because he wants to remind them you are children. You have a loving father. Yes, you're going through difficulty, but you have a loving father that has expectations on how you should live in the context of difficult situation, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. You know, over time, we can... We can take our lives back little bit by little bit to where we're doing things we never thought we'd ever do again. And before you know it, we can be unrecognizable. I've seen it too many times in my Christian walk. And, and, and so we have to be very careful and walk circumspectly and, and considering ourselves lest we also be tempted to be confident in God's grace and not our own self-effort to keep us where we need to be. So God says, be obedient, your children. Don't conform yourselves to your former way of life that you did in ignorance. When we're going through a trial, it's very easy to think, well, if I compromise, God understands because I'm going through this difficulty. He knows how hard it is. He knows how much I'm suffering. So he'll wink at this. He'll understand if I just do a little bit of disobedience. He doesn't understand. I mean, he has grace for it when we fall, of course. But his standard remains the standard, even when we're going through uh, a difficult time. We can think, well, I'll be able to handle it better, this difficulty, if I engage in sin. We went to drugs maybe to medicate and to escape our pain and our problems and so forth. And we have to be very careful when we're going through difficulty 
that we put those hedges or put those, those walls up and protect against us going back to that because that was our default setting. That was what we went to to deal with life. And that's not what God has for us anymore. We cast our cares upon him, not drugs, not money, not power, not all these things that we could name. We cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And so God wants us to live that kind of life. He, he doesn't wink at sin even in trials. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Notice the word all in the middle or towards the end of verse 15. Not some of it. And we lower the standards for ourselves to make us our, ourselves feel better. And that's why we need God's word because it, it doesn't change. That standard is the standard. It's not going to go anywhere. Even when we're going through difficulty, all of our conduct, not 99.9%, he wants us to aim for 100% of living like he wants us to live. The word holy means to be set apart, to be distinct. That's what he says. And I love, I'm just amazed that he would want us to be like him because we're his children. Just like you want your children to be like you, all the good things anyway. You want them to be like you. You want them to carry you know, take, what's the word, um, the phrase, uh, take after you on the good things. And when you see that, when you see your kids doing good things as a result of following your example, how much does it bless your heart? Massively blesses your heart. It's the same way with God. He has a greater love for us than we have for our children. So it blesses him when we live that type of life. There's a positional holiness that we receive at salvation. That's how he can even have anything to do with us. He sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at our lives supremely. But there's a practical holiness, and that's really what he's focusing on. He wants us to practically be holier and holier and holier as we grow in our walk with him. And it's important. And he says in verse 17, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So he says, Without partiality, he judges. Now, this isn't talking about heaven and hell. That's already settled. We're not going to be at the great white throne judgment that we see at the end of the book of Revelation. But we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Completely different. And that's where God assesses our walk with him and our ministries. And he tests our ministries and our hearts and our motivations for why we did what we did. And sometimes people paint this as an award ceremony that's all just, you know, joyous and, you know, we're chipper and all this and there's no sobriety associated with it. I think that that's a wrong view of the passage when you read about that. Because it, you're standing before him, you have to give an account of your life. And you're not wanting to, to grieve his heart. He's not I mean, wanting your heart to be grieved. I mean, it's, it's a love it's, it's a love encounter with him, of course. I don't want to have paint a different picture. But we're going to have to give an account for our lives before him. And he says we need to conduct ourselves in light of that. And notice, I don't know if you caught this, where he says, throughout the time of your stay here. That's what you say to people that are passing through. They're passing through. Hey, how long is your stay here in this town? You know? And that that's, lines up with what he's already said about us being pilgrims. We don't have... Ultimately, we don't have homes here. We're just staying here. And we're using his stuff. 
We're using his house, his apartment, whatever it is. We're using his car, his bike. We're using his clothes. We're using his money. We're using his relationships he's placed in our lives. We're using his word. All these things, they don't even really ultimately belong to us. They belong to him because we're just staying here. And he says to do it in fear. What's that mean? It means to be sober. It means to have a reverence a respect, a healthy fear of God. We need a lot more of that in the body of Christ, a fear of God, a respect, a holy reverence for him because we're going to have to stand before him. And this world's getting worse and worse. Standards are getting lowered even in the church world. Holiness standards are getting lowered and lowered and lowered. I see it all the time. Things that we never thought would be okay Five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, now Christians are free to engage in because their leaders are misleading them, unfortunately, and and they're leaving the word of God because the word of God doesn't change. So as this world gets worse, if we stay growing and maturing in our holiness, then our light's going to shine brighter and brighter and brighter because the world is going to get darker and darker and darker, which makes us more of an influence for his calling upon our lives. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> just, that, just that verse alone. I mean, you could just walk, take a walk for a while with that one. I mean, look at that. Knowing that you were not redeemed. What does it mean to redeem? It means to purchase. It's a picture of the slave market. If you're a slave, you're, on the, you're up for sale. And someone comes and buys you out of your slavery. We were enslaved to sin before we came to know him. And so he says, we have the purchase price for our redemption is not something that's, the, what he paid for us is not something that's going to be passing away or wasn't worth very much. He says, it was it, the, the, the precious blood of Christ as, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again, these are Jews. They know exactly what, he, what the imagery is communicating. That Old Testament lamb was with, had to be without spot, without blemish. That's why it was called a sacrifice. When they had spots and blemishes and all that, they weren't very worth very much. And that wasn't very much of a sacrifice to give it over to God. So he says, the precious blood of Christ, not things that pass away like silver or gold, Though that precious blood bought you out of the slave market. And because of that, you need to have your perspective properly aligned to realize that, yes, you're in an incredible difficulty right now, but God spent something very precious to buy you out of that slave market. Because if you were a slave to sin, if you were purchased out of that by something that precious, then why are you still engaged in, in those things and not aiming to be holier and holier by God's grace? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever notice he says your aimless conduct that describes all of us before christ right you thought you knew what you knew what was going on you thought you knew uh, that you know you that you had life by the tail so to speak and your life was aimless i remember when i received christ right before i received christ he showed me directly between me and him that my life was aimless that it was worthless <laughs> you're not going to be wealthy you're not going to be rich you're not going to be powerful. You're not going to have, you know, a harem, whatever I was thinking. I don't remember. But, I mean, you're not going to accomplish all the things you're thinking. You think that you're going to be this multimillionaire, all these business uh, things that you think that you're going to do. You have zero discipline. 
You know, what college degree do you, I mean, it just, it wasn't condemnation, but he's just showing me the, the futility of the way I was going. He revealed that by his spirit. That's God's true assessment of each one of our lives before we came to know Christ, even if we were very successful in the world. Remember, Paul said, I count all those things as loss, all those things as dung compared to the surpassing greatness of Christ and his calling upon my life. Then he says in verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now you think of the imagery in Leviticus of all the all the sacrifices and approaching God one way, how he prescribed us to approach him and the Jews and so forth, and all of the imagery that pointed to Christ. But you, but you know, the cross was not fashioned after the imagery in Leviticus. It's the other way around. The type was all fashioned because of the fulfillment that was coming. Christ knew that he would be dying in eternity past for us. And so all those types were made to, to point to something that he would fulfill later. But he was, he was crucified before the foundation of, of the world. That's how much he's thought all this through. But he says, it's for you. Look at the end of verse 20. In these last times, for you. All of that for you. Let that have its work in your life so that you can appreciate what he's done for you. Who through him believe in God. Now, the idea is not just to believe that God exists. That's already there. They were Jews. They believed in one God. It's talking about trusting. Believe means to trust. It's not just mental assent or mental agreement. He's saying, through him, that is Jesus, you trust in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Their faith and hope were not supposed to be in physical deliverance from the persecution. Their faith and trust in God and their hope in God was supposed to be there because that's our true deliverer. That's the one that it takes care of every situation that we have to struggle with uh, on a daily basis. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now, we don't purify our souls in the sense of making them spiritually clean. Of course, God does that. But we receive. We open up our hearts to him. So in that sense, we have done that, obeying the truth through the Spirit. And then he says, in sincere love of the brethren. That word love is our word phileo. It means brotherly love. And he says, you should have sincere love for the brethren. And then he tells us, love one another as a result of it. It's one of the few times that you have... Love is a noun and love is a verb in one verse. So you have this love for the brethren, the brotherly love, but then he changes the word in, in, in the second occurrence there, the, the verb there, love one another, it's the word agape, which means to, to love in a selfless way as a Christian love is supposed to be expressed. To love and do what's best for the other person even at our own expense. So he tells him to do that and it's in, the, it's a, in a command form there. So he commands us to love fervently. What does fervently mean? It means to stretch, to love, to have it stretch you, to stretch in order to be able to do what's best for somebody else. I think of, and I'm, I apologize kind of about this, but uh, I can't help but think of Stretch Armstrong as a kid. I mean, that toy that the arm, you know, they told me I couldn't break it. That was a mistake. And they told me I couldn't puncture it. That was another mistake. 
But, you know, if you tie one of those arms to a doorknob and you just start walking towards Denaire, it's going to snap eventually. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And, and so I know that's very dysfunctional, but that's what I think of when I think of stretching to the limit. And that's what he's telling us to do. He's commanding us to do this in the verse, to do what's best for other people to the point where we feel like we're going to snap. And, and that's the kind of love that he wants each one of us to demonstrate for our brethren. Well, some often we think, you know, God so loved the world that he gave, and that's true. But he tells us to focus on loving believers. We're a family here. And we're growing in, in incrementally, at a greater and greater rate, demonstrating love for one another. Because love is not just a feeling. This world teaches it's a feeling that can be elusive, that can go gone one day. Oh, I don't love you anymore. I have no control over it. But God says, no, it's, it's a willful thing. It's a decision. It's something that you do because you choose to do it, and you're going to do what's best for the other person, even if it hurts you. That's what the kind of love that God demonstrated for us. And so he, he, he's okay with us getting stretched in loving. I keep doing this like Stretch Armstrong. But he's okay with us getting stretched and, and, and loving to the point where we feel like we're going to snap. Verse 23, having been born again, not of incorruptible seed, but incorruptible, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then, then he quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, and he says, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass, the grass, with, grass withers and its flower falls away but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. God's word's going to stand. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So how much do we value his word, first of all? That's a searching question. But he's really talking about the gospel and its effects uh, and its effect on their lives. So he's saying these believers, the gospel and its effects in your lives is just as sure as all that pro- Isaiah prophesied. It's, you look to Isaiah as a, as, a, as a Jew or your background's a Jew and you think that everything that Isaiah prophesied came to pass flawlessly and perfectly and the effect of that, that word of God is quite vast in their past. I didn't mean to rhyme. Um, and, and so they need to realize that uh, uh, that the word of God, the gospel has been preached to them and the effects of it is going to outlast everything. God's word's going to stand. They're going through this difficulty. They're going through this persecution. But the effect of the gospel being preached to them and all the inheritance that is associated with it and God keeping them for that inheritance as we looked at last week is going to happen. It's going to stand. And when we're going through difficulty, isn't it true that we can just question God's word? And we do the same thing that that. Satan did in the garden. Hath God said? Did God say it? Is it really true? Are his promises really yea and amen to us? Absolutely. And so we need to have that confidence. We are all a beautiful work of his creativity. The Christ-likeness that he is producing in our lives is beautiful to him. We have the ability to forgive. We have the ability to uh, be a blessing to others. We have the ability to be servants we were never servants before. We wanted to serve ourselves. Yeah, we were servants to ourselves, but not other people. That's all, all this that he's done in us is an effect of 
his gospel and how it will outlast everything and his word will outlast everything. All that he's blessed us with will last and last and last and it will outlive this world. So when we go through trials, it's easy to forget those things. God doesn't want us to forget those things. And maybe you're going through a trial and you need to hear that right now. But maybe you're not going through a trial, but he wants to invest that in your life so that when you do and you go through those things, then you'll be sustained and encouraged. We're told in other places to rejoice. And then he said it again. And again, I will say rejoice. What is joy? Joy is that which we get to be blessed by because of our relationship with God. And circumstances doesn't affect those things. Our relationship with him, no matter what we go through, persecution included, does not change because of what we go through. And so he wants us to have that eternal perspective. He wants us to live a holy life. And we need to be able to be encouraged by other believers and exhorted by other believers related to holiness. Can you be exhorted today? Can someone say something that would be hard for them to say, but they know it's best for you and and you have to receive it? We have to all be able to do that. If we're not able to have that happen to us, we're going to be limited in our growth. So we have to be able to be exhorted. Someone has to be able, because they pay a price to say it, first of all. Number two, we need to be uh, listening to the Spirit through their life because God has placed them in our life in part to, to give us that needed direction. So he's going to appear one day, we're going to see him, and that grace is going to be manifested fully in our lives when we have our new bodies before him. So let that be encouragement to you that he is investing in, in you and, is in, and in light of eternity and in light of practical holiness, those things will help us be able to navigate anything that he brings our way. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you make us different pray that you would encourage anyone here that's struggling with their holiness, their personal holiness, Lord. And I pray, Lord, you'd open up your word like never before to them to help them see how to put off the old man and put on the new man and how to take up their cross daily and follow you, Lord. We all struggle with that at times. So I just pray, Lord, that as a church and as individuals, Lord, and a collective body, a family, that we would grow in holiness, that we'd become holier and holier and holier. We thank you, Jesus, that you're the, the the ultimate example of what that looks like. We have a great example to look to of what you want to produce through our lives. So help us to do that by your grace and by your power. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.